Charleston First Church of the Nazarene in South Charleston, West Virginia. I'm Paul Neal, one of the staff pastors here at SC First. In today's episode, we'll share the message from the morning service on October 16th. This past Sunday, Pastor Kent Estep opened the Word of God for us with a message titled, God Can Handle the Truth. We'll be back with you next week with sermon discussion. Now, let's listen to Pastor Kent's message. All right, thank you again for joining us today. We are continuing our series in prayer today. And a reminder, if you didn't know, the block party is this afternoon. Be in prayer for all of that. We are hoping to impact our community and opportunity for many of us to serve uh, them today. And I'm so thankful, I'll just say it in advance, of all those who have already done a lot of preparation for what this day holds and all of those who are going to be uh, involved in, in making it come about today. We're thankful and thankful for the opportunity uh, that we have to be a light in this community of Jesus Christ, and we want it to be more than just a fun event today. We hope it'll make uh, some connections in our community and lead, lead some folks down to, uh, to us where we can minister to them more, more fully. All right, so back to the, to the lesson of the day. Uh, you know, the Christian church, uh, not officially as such, but through the years has come up with different models of prayer, uh, if you will, different practices, different formulas, if you will, that we can follow in our everyday prayer lives, and they have different names. Um, there is the Acts model of prayer, uh, using those four letters of that word uh, in, in the types of prayer that we can, that we can give or uh, examples of prayer. One of those is adoration. The A stands for adoration, so uh, lifting our praise to God for who He is. Uh, the C stands for confession, uh, owning our sin. You know, we as Nazarenes believe that you don't have to sin in word, thought, and deed every day. But sometimes we do sin, and confession should be a part of our ongoing life. Uh, and so that's an important aspect of prayer. Thanksgiving, the T, uh, giving God, God praise for all of the blessings of life, many of those things that we take for granted day to day. S stands for supplication. It really is just talking about that aspect of prayer where God is placing the needs of others on our hearts, and so we are uh, interceding for them, we're praying for them in supplication. That's one type model of prayer. Uh, there's another type of prayer, the five-finger model of prayer, reminding us of how we can be praying for others in our life. So the thumb reminds us to pray for those who are closest to us, so our family members, those close friends, that kind of thing. Thumb stands for that. The pointer finger stands for those uh, who guide us. So it might be teachers or mentors, doctors, pastors, bosses might fall into that category. Um, middle finger, uh, pray for those who lead us. The tall finger, the government, pray for those leaders, civic leaders, business leaders. Ring finger, praying for those who are weak, the poor, the sick, the disabled, the elderly, uh, those who are suffering, those who are afflicted in life. And then the pinky finger, praying for ourselves, uh, the least of these, right? That's, that's the five-finger model of prayer. There's another prayer model. I'm not quite as familiar with this one. It's, it's entitled, Take a Trip with God. And it uses four questions to kind of take us on this journey. The T again stands for, what, for what am I thankful? That's the question. And so we ask ourselves, for what are we thankful? We go through that list and give God thanks for that. The R stands for, what do I regret? Uh, what are some actions that I've taken that are uh, wrong? I need forgiveness for those things. The I stands for intercession. Again, praying for those who need prayer that we're aware of, needs that we're aware of. And then P, uh, what is my purpose? God, what is your plan for me? As I go through life, I want to be in constant 
uh, awareness of what, what this looks like, this journey that I'm on with you. Where are you leading me? I want to be open to that. Different models of prayer. There's also a model of prayer called the TACOS model of prayer, T-A-C-O-S. Despite your first impression, it's not a prayer for healing after ingesting the steak chalupa at Taco Bell. That's not what the TACOS model of prayer is all about. Then there are some famous narratives in prayer. Um, and by the way, you know, some people, I'm not going to talk against this. I think there are some really positive things about systematically praying some of these prayers and following some of these models. I think our prayer, need, our prayer life needs to be deeper than that, right? But these are some good beginning points. These, these are some great models to follow. It allows us to keep different aspects of our prayer life in order, of, of, of things that need to be included in our, our prayer lives. And when it comes to these narratives uh, of prayer, some people pray these things each and every day systematically in their prayer life. Uh, and I think that's very meaningful and very good. In, in fact, do you know for the longest period of time in the Christian church, there wasn't much extemporaneous praying going on. That's a big word that just means off the cuff kind of praying, where people just got up and just prayed, you know, what, whatever was on their mind. That wasn't a part of the Christian church for a number of years. Everything was a written, read prayer. Uh, in some churches, they have the, the Book of Common Prayer, and so that's what they do each and every Sunday, read those same prayers, and those can be deeply meaningful. So I'm not discounting any of, of that. Some narratives in prayer, of course, would include the Lord's Prayer. Uh, Jesus himself taught, taught his disciples how to pray. We're going to be studying the Lord's Prayer in several weeks, so I'm not going to talk about that too much now. There's St. Francis of Assisi's Peace Prayer. Maybe you'll remember some of these words, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love, and there's more to that prayer. There's Thomas Merton's prayer of unknowing. My Lord God, I have no idea where I'm going. I do not see the road ahead of me, and that fact that I think, and the, the fact that I think I am following your will does not mean that I am actually doing so, but I believe the desire to please you does in fact please you. That's a great prayer. Sometimes in our lives we have moments of uncertainty. We think we're doing all that God is directing us to do. We're doing our best to do that, but we're not really clear. And so it's just a matter of us trusting God and taking that next step with Him and knowing as we seek to do His will, He is pleased with us. The serenity prayer. Uh, many of us have become more uh, accustomed to to praying this prayer as we're a part of Celebrate Recovery. It begins this way, Lord, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the wisdom, I mean, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. We pray that each and every week. Of course, the serenity prayer is not to be confused with the senility prayer. The senility prayer goes like this, Lord, grant me the senility to forget the people I never liked anyway, the good fortune to run into the ones I do, and the eyesight to tell the difference. Some effective models of prayer. They accentuate prayer's importance, but no, no matter what type of praying we're doing, I think sometimes we're missing a key element. I want to talk about that key element today. I think sometimes we lack honesty and transparency. That's what I think. Uh, David, he wrote a psalm, Psalm 62, 8, and I think it gives us some great advice as we begin this sermon about honest, transparent, transparent prayer. 
Um, it, it's written and it's an invitation to prayer to us. Psalm 62, 8, pour out your heart before God, for God is a refuge for us. Pour out your heart to God. I want to read it from a couple of different translations. The contemporary English version says it this way, trust God, my friends, and always tell him each of your concerns. And then the contemporary, or the good news translation says this, trusting God at all times, my people, tell him all your troubles, for he is our refuge. And so David is reminding us that God's word to us is this, come before me and get it all out. Spill the beans, shoot straight with me. But I ask the question, will we do that? Have you been willing to do that? Will you take him at his word? Or do you believe, have you believed in your life that praying to God in this way, that he would somehow hold that against you? That you really can't be that honest with God. I would suggest that in my own life, many times my, my prayer life has not been fully trusting. In fact, nothing close to it. Many times it's been restrained, it's been half-hearted, it's not authentic, it's guarded and confined. And really, many times it's guarded by what I think God wants to hear. It's not what I'm feeling, it's not, not what I want, it's not what I need to say. And so it's guarded. I'm not being honest with God. It's one of the things I think Jesus was getting at when he was speaking to a crowd and he was saying, what you need is faith. And he went on to say to them, what you really need is childlike faith. When he made that statement to the crowd, to his followers, he wasn't talking about them being more immature. That's not what he was saying at all. But he was saying what you really need to do is demonstrate a childlike trust. And we see evidence of that, right, in a child's life when a child, it's most apparent to us when a child is in trouble or when a child is in peril or they are fearful for some reason. And so this natural reflexive call comes to the father or to the mother in desperate honesty. They know they're in trouble. They know they need help. And so they cry out for help and they're very blunt about what they need. It's not some carefully worded, delicately selected, nondescript language. It's faith that speaks what it sees and what it feels and what it believes, and how it hurts, and what it fears, and what it needs. It's authentic and real. It's authentic and real. And kids practice that kind of real, authentic language all the time, don't they? Blaze Press came along, and it, it put together some hilarious notes from kids who tell it exactly like it is. One teacher was, well, wasn't wise, and she asked her class, her second grade class, to review her class and her teaching style and to write down some notes about that. Jacoby wrote this, this class was okay, but it could have been a lot better if we would have played more games and if you wouldn't have talked so much. <laughs> Blunt honesty, right? A mom picking up her kid from school scolded him by saying, you didn't even notice my brand new haircut. Logan, her 10-year-old son, said this back to her. I'm not married to you. It's not my job. <laughs> Here's another reality check for a needy mother. As she, and she and her daughter were riding to, uh, to get something to eat. Her daughter's name was Lexi. And her daughter confessed this to her mother, this moment of truth. You know, Mom... You were my best friend until I really had some actual friends. 
Oh, that's the same reaction the first crowd had. That kind of feeling sorry for the mom about that. This last one, it, I think it relates a bit to our sermon text today, and we're going to get there in just a moment. But it conveys Haley's anger toward her older brother, Ethan, who she feels like is getting all the breaks in life, even though he is tremendously mean and selfish. And so she puts together this Ethan's gone list, hoping for his demise, right? This is what she said she would immediately do if, if Ethan were to be gone. She would take all of his money, she would rip up his Minecraft poster, she would dye his carpet pink, and she would hammer everything else that he loves. I'm not, listen, listen to me now. All right. I'm not suggesting that this should or will be our ongoing feelings in prayer, but I am suggesting that this is honesty, and could I suggest that this is exactly where many prayers of the Bible begin, in this kind of blunt honesty, in desperation, in questions, in disappointment, in pain, and in hurt. We're turning to Psalm 73. Uh, this is a psalm in our Bible, in your Bible, maybe it has the same description as mine. It's a psalm of Asaph. Uh, Asaph was a musician who was employed by King David, and his job was ministering before the Ark of the Covenant in Jerusalem. And so when David writes at the beginning of many of his psalms, if you see this note in your Bible, there, many times before some of these psalms, it says this, for the director of music with stringed instruments, then that little note was written for Asaph. He was writing to Asaph and the other people of the band, if you will. And Asaph himself is credited with writing 12 uh, psalms in Scripture, including Psalm 73 through Psalm 83. So we, you know, we don't talk a lot about this guy. Who was he? Again, he was a successful worship leader. And so this guy was no spiritual slouch, right? I mean, that's not who he was. Often, I think we make this assumption, though, that he was maybe on some elevated plane because he was the director of music. Sometimes I think we do that with our human leaders of music or worship, uh, that we put them on some elevated plane, that they never have moments of doubt, that they're never battling questions. And that's just not fair. And really what I like about this sermon today is being able to point the light at Asaph, this leader of the people in worship, and yet he was still battling with many questions and confusion in his own mind. He leads us by example in prayer. The first thing that Asaph does in his praying is he admits his struggle. That's point number one. Look at verses one through three. Surely God is good to Israel. Surely God is good to Israel. It's like he's trying to convince himself, right? To those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. That's, that's where he was. By our standard, again, let's look back at, at Asaph's life. I mean, he seems like he has everything going for him. He's got this successful career. He is the number one, he's the number one worshiper in all of Israel. I mean, he's gifted, he's talented, but he's not happy. He's not satisfied. He's not contented. In fact, he describes himself as envious. He wants what others have, and so he covets what belongs to someone else. That's envy. A pastor, Tim Keller, comes along and he gives us a fuller definition of envy. I want to read it to you. He writes it this way, to envy is to want someone else's life. 
It's to feel not just that they don't deserve their good life, but that you do, and God hasn't been fair in not granting a better life to you. That's envy, and it's ugly. And Asaph's envy is especially ugly because he knows that he is seeking after those who are wicked. He's envious of the life of the wicked. And who are the wicked? The wicked are the people who are living in disobedience to God. They are the ones who are ignoring God's rules and God's laws. And they're living their life however they choose to live it. And Asaph still looks at them and he looks at their life and he says, they're not just getting away with living a life like that, an evil life. They're actually getting ahead in life because of the life they're living. It's kind of like Haley felt about Ethan, her older brother, right? She was, she was angry because he was getting all the benefits of life, and he was mean and obnoxious and a real jerk. And that's the way Asaph is feeling. He goes on to describe this group of people in verses 4 through 11. He says in verse 4, they're successful and healthy. Their lives are easier than most in verse 5. They're prideful and arrogant and greedy, and they aren't afraid to use others in getting ahead. In verses 9 and 10, it describes them as folks who are having it all. They deny God. They don't believe in Him in verse 11. And then he summarizes all of his frustration and pent-up anger in verse 12. This is what the wicked are like, and yet... They are always free of care, and they go on amassing wealth. Have you ever been there before? Ever been there before, struggling with God, whether he can be good and true? When you look upon the world and you see evil people going unpunished, Maybe you've got a coworker who doesn't mind lying or cutting corners or lying on their sales receipts and they keep getting promoted when really what should happen to them is they should be fired. Maybe you think of a politician or a government official, keep your middle finger out of this, who lies and is corrupt and they keep getting reelected. Can God still be good if he's letting bad people get ahead? Can God still be good? This is a struggle. This is a question, a feeling, a determination Asaph has made. And he admits that I'm struggling with this God. It's honest. It's real. It's what he feels. And he was a worship leader again, I want to remind you. And yet, what does he do in these moments? These are real feelings that he has. He's angry. He's frustrated. He doesn't understand why his life isn't going right. And everybody else's life seems to be going right around him. And what does he do in prayer but pour out his heart to God, telling him his concerns and expressing his true feelings? And this kind of praying, listen, it's not refined. It's not carefully crafted. And get this, it might even be a mixture of true and untrue thoughts, a mixture of spiritual clarity and emotional baggage that we bring, a mixture of what we truly need and what we think we need. But at least amidst all of that, what this prayer is, at least what this prayer is, is honest. I like how Esther Smith writes about this kind of prayer encounter. She writes, when you pour out your heart before God, unfiltered thoughts and emotions rush out and collect in a pile at his feet. And listen, here's what I want you to get. I think something is important is happening 
in this interaction between us and God. In these moments, in this prayer, before God changes our thoughts, He gives us the opportunity to speak what we're thinking out loud to Him, even though we may not be thinking rightly. And listen, praying these uncensored thoughts is important because when we try to edit unwanted thoughts prematurely, our heart hasn't yet been altered. We've simply just niced up, we've adulted up the wording of our prayer because the way a kid would say it is too bold and offensive. But hear me, the truth is it's only when we speak out loud the thoughts that we're actually having not the thoughts that we want to have, that we can then begin to work through them and get to the place where we see clearly and begin believing rightly. And could I say, that's what I think God wants to do for us in prayer. And what, a, what better place could there be for our thinking and our mind to be transformed than in the presence of God? Amen. Now some of you, are maybe you're a little bit resistant, thanks RB is not to this idea, because sometimes we've been fearful about praying this way. But could I say again that psalm after psalm is made up of prayers just like this. Again, Tim Keller writes, he has called many of the psalms pre-reflective outbursts from the depths of our being in the presence of God. And so I've talked about this somewhat about lamenting, being able to pour out our heart before God, being able to say exactly what we're feeling and not being fearful that God is going to run from us. Asaph does this again in Psalm 77. He's the author one more time. His pain is enor enormous. His doubt is immense. And he's struggling with all of these questions about God. For some reason, again, this is the guy who's singing before the congregation each and every Sunday. This is the guy who knows the truth, and yet he's still dealing with these struggles and, and, the, and these doubts and these questions. And so, in Psalm 77, 7, he asks the question, has God rejected me? Has God rejected me? Verse 8, is God even loving? Can I trust him to keep his promise? And then in verse 9, is he withholding his compassion from me? The psalmist, again, I believe he has a purpose for speaking his doubts out loud and processing his incorrect thinking. As the psalm continues, we see that his questions and his expressions of lament lead him to remembering how God has shown up in his past. He then proceeds to meditate on God's past redeeming works over his people, reminding himself that God is holy and great by the time we get to verse 13. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. It's likely that the psalmist never would have progressed to this new line of thinking if he had initially pushed his thoughts, his untrue thoughts away. But this, even among this questioning, here's where I want you to get. God is never fearful of your question. God is never fearful. And when you come expressing yourself in that way, this is where God met Asaph. And this is where God will meet you if we will own our feelings, if we will ask our questions, and if we will admit the struggle that we're in. God wants to meet you right there. Point number two is this. He was willing to confess his doubt. Surely in vain, verse 13 begins, have, have I kept my heart pure? 
uh, and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted, and every morning brings new punishments. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. And, and I want you to get to the depth of what Asaph is feeling here. I mean, he's really contemplating, he's at a spiritual low, and he's contemplating, am, am I going to keep following God? Am I going to keep walking after his ways or not? I mean, I've got to ask myself the question Asaph is saying, is it really worth it? Is it worth it to follow after God? And he puts all these doubts on the table. He's not, he, he doesn't want to sweep it under the rug. And so he, he says his walk with the Lord, his allegiance to God, he says it's been vanity. That's the word one translation uses. It's vanity. And what does that word mean? It means that it's been empty. It's been nothing. It's been, it's been a waste. In other words, he's saying it's, not, it's, it's done me no good. It's done me no good to live a life of, of obedience to God. I, I've wasted my life. In fact, in verse 14, he suggests that his decision has actually made his life worse than it would have been. All day long I've been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments because I'm serving and following God and following his ways and his laws. It, it's, my life is worse than it would have been. That's where he is in his mind and that's how he's praying before God. And I'm asking again, have you ever been there? When you feel like you're doing everything right, you're living a moral life, you're loving Jesus with all your heart, you're reading your Bible, you're praying every day, you're going to church, you're giving your tithes and offerings, you're serving in different ways, maybe even missions, trips, and those kinds of things. You're telling your friends about Jesus, you're, you're obeying to the best of your ability everything that Jesus is telling you to do in life, and yet life is bringing you sickness and questions and disease and trouble at work and broken relationship, and you're experiencing disappointment and heartache and loss on and on. It just seems to be stacking up against you. I think we've all had those moments. And we've looked to the sky and we've raised our fist to God. And we've said, why God? Why are you allowing this to happen to me? Have you ever done that? Or have you been afraid to? Have you ever done that? Or have you simply been afraid to? Can I say that there are biblical characters who have done this, who have prayed these kinds of accusatory prayers to God, these honest, bold, childlike prayers telling God exactly how they feel, accusing Him of wrongdoing? Let me read some to you. Moses' prayer, Numbers 11, verse 11. Why have you brought this trouble on your servant? Moses was dealing with a um, disobedient people. They were complaining about the food that they were receiving in, in uh, the promised land. And they were complaining before him, why have you brought this trouble on your servant? Why am I having to deal with all of this? The pressure is intense. I can't deal with it any longer. longer. Elijah cried out, why have you brought tragedy to this widow who has opened her home to me? The widow had lost her only son. And Elijah's calling out to God, accusing him. Why did you do this? Why did you cause this? Psalm 10 and 1, David asked, O oh Lord, why do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? David, we know he went through different issues in life. He had a son that died. He, he fled many years from King Saul trying to escape 
his, uh, his hatred and his anger, his jealousy, as he tried to pursue David. And David's saying to God, why, God, when I need you most, why, when I need you most, are you hiding yourself from me? Job asked, why have you made me your target? Why, why have I become a burden to you, that verse goes on to say. When all of Job's life was in disarray, he had lost all of his children, all of his livestock. Everything was taken from him. Why have you made me your target? Wow, aren't these bold accusations against God? Some hard questions of God that maybe some of us have never been willing to voice and say to him? But you know what happens in every one of these encounters? Maybe what doesn't happen is more important. Never does God retreat from any of these encounters. Never once. Every time there's the opportunity, and in these cases there's a deepening of the relationship. It leads these prayers into more intimate connection to God. Their questions, their doubts, their confusion leads them to a deeper, more intimate relationship with God. And so I'm suggesting to us that God would rather us confess our doubts to him, ask our questions of him, bear our hearts to him, than for us to run away and hide or for us to simply fake it. God is not interested in masked prayers. He wants the truth. And apart from what Jack Nicholson said, God can handle the truth, right? The first crowd, that went right over their heads. Nobody... <laughs> nobody got it and the teenagers there are saying what is the pastor talking about I'm in that I'm in that middle section today right right God wants us to confess our doubts and so he invites us to pray this way have you ever been there in your own have you ever been there I'll never be able to voice it what happens in those moments but he will meet you there. He will not fail you. I look at this crowd today and I, I know some of your stories. I know where you've been. And I know it's some of your testimony that he will meet you there. He will not fail. He will not. I'm reminded too that some of those moments he meets us. I don't know about you, some of you, but some of those doubts have a way of resurrecting themselves from time to time. Even though he's led you through this past experience, I, I identify with the children of Israel at times, who he had led through the Red Sea and who he had guided by a, you know, with a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, and he supplied all their manna. And yet there were still times, though they had been led through those places where doubt still arose, right? And there were more crises that came up or reminders and, and you're thinking, God, are you going to be faithful again? So I don't want to leave the impression this is kind of a one-time conversation with God. I've had it many times. I don't know about you. Many times where doubts and questions come and what I have found him to be is a friend who is never impatient. He will stand with you. His love is enduring. The Bible tells us his love endures forever. His his mercy and his compassion are without end. That's who God is and who he will be to you. Praise be to his name. Point number three is this. I'm already over time, aren't I? But he went into God's presence. 
He says in verse 16, when I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. And so he, he finds his, his, his answer in the presence of God. This is the answer for all of us, that we find the presence of God. For him, it was the Ark of the Covenant, right? That's where he was. He ministered before the Ark of the Covenant. It was a tent where the Ark of the Covenant was stored. That's where it, where it was for him. He found God's presence and when he found God's presence, some things happened. In God's presence, uh, God helps him see the final plan for the wicked. And so I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but essentially, God brought him to the truth. God brought him to the truth. And it changed what he was thinking, right? He was at first thinking that, that uh, they were being led. The wicked, you know, their final destiny was going to be, uh, you know, uh, amassing wealth and all those kinds of things. He said all of that was but a dream. And so he brought what his thinking was, they say it in the popular culture this way, right? He brought his truth, right? He brought his truth before God, and then God corrected his truth to the truth, right? So that's an important step that needs to happen. That's what happened in his life. The second thing that happened was that he was able to see his own sin, and he was brought to a place of repentance. He had the courage, first and foremost, to admit his his struggle and his question and all those kinds of things. But then he was also confident enough to express his sin and seek God's forgiveness. There in verse 22 it says, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. And so when we are willing to open ourselves before God, becoming, uh, becoming honest before him, I think what happens is, in those moments is that God opens up enough space for him to go to work in our life and to change our heart and to change our desire. In Asaph's case, where did he begin? He began by seeking after the life of the godless. He was, he was envious of their life. He was wanting to do what the arrogant were doing. That's where he was being led. By the end of this psalm, where is he? He is seeking the nearness of God. He wants to be close to him. And then see, in God's presence, he... God allows him to see that, Asaph, I've always been with you, and you have been with me. Look at verse 23. Yet I'm always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? That's a great question, great question of the Bible. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Could I give you the assurance that God will never leave you nor forsake you? He is not scared nor is he put off by our envy or by our questions. God wants us to pour out our heart before him honestly and transparently. And when we do, what are we guaranteed? We're guaranteed that he will meet us right there in his faithful presence. His, he will speak his calm to our racing thoughts and our worries. And it's there in his merciful compassion. He will draw us into more intimate, deeper relationship with him. Amidst our questions, amidst our doubt, he will meet us there. Praise be to his name. Let me pray over you today. Father, we thank you that this is your word to your people today. Sometimes we ourselves are overcome by the circumstances of life, and we worry, and we're fearful, and sometimes we doubt. 
We think, why is all of this happening to us? Why have you failed us? Sometimes we make accusations against you. We're thankful that you're big enough to take all that. You're big enough as we come before you and we speak our mind that you are willing to receive it on your shoulders. You're willing to take it. And then in your calm way, you speak your peace and your presence over us. And if we'll stay in that communion with you, then you will convince us of your truth, which is the truth. May it be true for me. May it be true for anyone who's struggling today. May they find your grace more than sufficient. We pray it in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen. God go with you today.